This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. We actually have the live guest that I have been dangling at you for an hour, dear listeners. He is on the phone calling all the way from Florida, USA. Mike Whalen, you out there? Can you hear me? Good morning, Tucker, and good morning to Los Angeles. Yes, I'm sitting here at, uh, well, it's now 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm in, in my Snuggie. Uh, I may not leave my bathrobe all day long, so happy fourth to everybody. Happy fourth, brother. I'm happy that you're that you're calling in. Can you hear me nice or am I okay? Man, I I, I hear you beautifully. You know, as long as it's not one of these I gotta get up at six AM in the morning, I'm 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 okay and I'm functioning good by nine thirty, ten o'clock. Beautiful. So we're okay. Beautiful, beautiful. So Mike, I've been telling them all before you called in who you are and what you're all about. But why don't you just go ahead and spare me the butchering and just give your, your credentials here. Run them down for us before we get going. Mike Whalen, Michael J. Whalen, Michael J. Fox Whalen, take us back to the future. Who are you, man? Well, I've, I, I spent about 30 years in the television business. I had a, uh, a wonderful run at HBO Sports in New York uh, where I worked on the incredible world championship boxing series uh inside the nfl at the time with len dawson nick bonacani and chris collinsworth uh wimbledon tennis which we did uh all the uh the matches going into the finals which nbc would take over and we were really known for our documentary producing and one of the great things about hbo back in the 70s 80s and 90s is you know, we ran without commercials, so we were able to produce shows and documentaries so much more like many movies because we didn't have the interruption break. And then in 1994, I got the opportunity uh, to come down with a blank canvas and create the Golf Channel, which I stayed until about the year 2000 and, uh, and have left. And now I'm doing uh, different and better things. I hear that. So we're going to definitely delve into the Golf Channel, but I know you and I have been talking quite a bit because, first of all, we met through the Internet, and you found me initially because you listened to me on a podcast for my golf website, from com, where I write for, and you'd heard me purporting some things that weren't very accurate about a piece I was about to write that turned into my 7,000-word piece, Breaking Bad with Peter Kessler, a man that you not only know well, but pretty much gave his break in the television broadcasting business. And you were a big contributor for that and helped me out with that. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing here, because I'm writing a new profile with you, kind of a memoir profile about your life called I Built a Masterpiece and Then I Fell Apart, the Michael J. Whalen story. So, Mike, Let's let's get in the time machine like like we're going to and give them just a little teaser. We don't have to go into all the gory details here, but a little teaser of what's to come. And I built a masterpiece, and then I fell apart. Let, let's tell them a little bit about your, your your history here. So let's go back to the back to the past again, even further back. Who are you, man? Where'd you come from? How did you how did you grow up? How did how did you get into producing these legendary moments? Give us a little bit about your childhood. Give us a little bit about where you came from. And you know well, who you are. I, well, I well I always grew up in the sports environment. My my father was heavily involved in the professional sports world. He was the athletic trainer uh, back in the '60s for the Pittsburgh Pirates, 
specifically in 1960 when the Pirates beat the New York Yankees with the first ever walk-off home run. My dad was a tremendous raconteur and storyteller in character back in the Pittsburgh days where I kind of grew up a little bit before I moved back to California. Uh, I was the bat boy back in 1960 when Mazeroski rounded third base uh, after defeating the heavily favored New York Yankees. Um, my parents divorced when I was about eight or nine years old, and we moved back to California where I grew up with my grandparents and my mother. My father went from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the New York Knicks basketball team where he became a well-known uh, physician for the New York Knicks. They called him Big Time Danny Whalen, and he was known primarily for being Red Holtzman, the trainer's right-hand guy. My dad was known for giving Will Frazier the name Clyde, uh, Bill Bradley, Dollar Bill, and was just really heavily into sports. So I've always been around professional athletes, the sports world. I love the environment, but never connected it with television by any means. Um, I went to St. Mary's College on a baseball scholarship and then eventually went out to New York to think I was going to medical school. And about two, two or three weeks before I was going to begin uh, school, I happened to have a date. And my date at the time was an actress for a soap opera called All My Children at the time. And we went to a party. And at the party, uh, followed a production of one of the shows. And I got a chance to sit in the control room see how it's done and i was mesmerized by how similar uh television is to sports the teamwork the uh the, the pressure the thrill of success and it was something that just fascinated me and happenstance that the post uh, party that evening i happened to be introduced to the president of cbs who took a liking to me and said hey if you don't want to become a doctor, why don't you come and work for me? And about two weeks later, I sent a letter to NYU, said I wouldn't be uh, starting medical school, and got a job as a production assistant for CBS. Didn't last there very long, and uh, ended up doing a 14-day uh, stint at HBO, which turned into 14 years. So what I think is so ironic, I'm going to fill in the pieces for, for you here, was that your father, who had been this raconteur, as you say, and had been this sports icon in his own right, was not thrilled with you going into sports entertainment as a career. That's correct? Well, my father and I had been estranged for many, many years. As I said, when my parents divorced when I was eight years old, I, we moved back to the West Coast where my mother and father were originally from, and I grew up... Uh, really kind of poor. I grew up in a 300-square-foot home. I, my mother and, and my sister slept in one room, and my brother and I shared a pull-out sofa until I was 18 years old. The dichotomy of that is, on the other hand, my father was a celebrity in the sports world. He was very, very famous, and he lived a completely different life. So for many years, uh, because of the 3,000-mile difference, uh, my father and I had no relationship except when the Knicks would come to the Bay Area and play the Warriors, I was the ball boy. Or when they would go down and play the Lakers, I was the ball boy. But my dad and I didn't really have a real close relationship. So when I had the opportunity 
to uh, future my education and look at physical therapy, orthopedic surgery, and go to New York, uh, my father was happy that not only was I doing something wonderful with my career, but also that he and I were sort of rekindling our relationship again uh, until the day when I came home and said, hey, I've got this wonderful idea. I'm giving up everything that I've worked so hard to do to go into television, which I knew nothing about. Uh, my dad threw me out of the house at the time and said, uh, you know, you're never going to become anything. And so I spent weeks living in a YMCA in Midtown Manhattan, not knowing anybody and wondering if I had made a decision, having taken a job that paid me at the time $12,000 a year. Uh, fast forward years later, as I became more successful, uh, became an Emmy Award winning producer, um, my dad put his arm around me and said, son, I knew it all the time. And um, up until his death, we, we had a great relationship uh, up until the end. Well, that's interesting, and, and I definitely think that many of our listeners and many of the people that, that would be interested in this story are dreamers, and you obviously had a dream long before you became a big success at all of it. Did you know all along that your goal was to be the kind of architect, the kind of, the kind of masterpiece painter that you became as a producer, or was it just I, to break into TV in general? I think my creativity um, evolved from a very dysfunctional uh, childhood experience of divorce. And, you know, once again, back in the you know, 50s and 60s, my father was the was one of the biggest things in the professional sports Pittsburgh area. And people looked up to my father as being part of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And part of my identity as a very, very young boy was who my dad was. And when my dad and my mother divorced at a very young year, uh, at a very young age, and my dad suddenly disappeared in the middle of the night, uh, it left a lot of questions to the people on the neighborhood and mostly my childhood friends of where in the hell is your dad we haven't seen him for ages so in order to protect myself emotionally i had to create stories of where my father was and why he wasn't around and i learned to be a fabulous storyteller to protect uh my sanity at a very very young age and i, and I think that's where my storytelling actually evolved from um and I just became really good at being able to see scenes and see people's lives and emotionally be able to talk about them or write about them at, at a depth that most people could not. So as bad as it was when I was a young lad, it really helped create the creative person that I finally became. That's interesting, and I think a lot of people would think that a tough childhood like that might lead someone to no success at all, but in essence, it, it kind of drove you to be the storyteller that you became. All right, now let's, let's flash forward. You're at HBO. You've been there a while. You're starting to get successful. You were involved with helping produce some very iconic events in sports history, and obviously anybody that knows HBO knows HBO is known for incredible sports programming. I'd say HBO Sports is some of the finest 
that there is in the entertainment industry. And okay, let's let's go to your first kind of big breaks there. You said it was boxing. Was was it Sugar Ray Leonard? Well, what, what, where did you get your break? HBO back in the, in the early '80s was was known for its uh, incredible boxing world championship events, and that's where I was brought in. And there was kind of three amigos who were in charge of all of the boxing, and that was my two mentors, Ross Greenberg and Rick Bernstein, and then there was myself, and the three of us, uh, for the most part, shared the duties of producing the boxing events. But back in those days is when boxing was king. Back in those days, you had Larry Holmes, and you had Sugar Ray Leonard, and you had the Roberto Durans, and you had the Tommy Hearns, and you had an up-and-coming guy by the name of Mike Tyson, and you had Julio Cesar Chavez, and you had Meldrick Taylor. Everything that HBO did was must-see TV for the boxing fans, and I happened to be a part of all of that uh, for well over a decade. Obviously, probably the, the most known fight was the one that we did out of Tokyo, and that was the night that Buster Douglas, a 40-to-1 underdog, uh, knocked out Iron Mike Tyson, and both lives changed forever, uh, including HBO Sports uh, really went to a level that was unseen in the sports broadcasting arena. You know, I was just watching the the documentary that ESPN did on their 30 for 30 about Buster Douglas and that humongous upset, and they were saying odds-wise it's got to be one of the biggest upsets in any sport in history. But you were telling me a little bit about that night and being there helping produce it and a little bit about how euphoric it got even for you guys. Give us a little bit of that. What was it like for you guys in the truck and, and producing it when, when that humongous, unprecedented, unbelievable upset happened? Well, the, the amount of people that go on to put on a live television sports production uh, would be shocking to most people. It takes well over 100 people, uh, men and women, in front of the camera and, beca- and behind the camera to actually produce a live event. And for the most part, the people who do these jobs are the most uh, utmost professional, focused, skilled individuals that exist on planet Earth. I mean, I, I really related to um, you know, looking at some of these surgical documentaries they do where the orthopedic goes in and they replace hearts and knees. Um, you know, for many people, it's gory and it's, it's hard to believe it can be done. But those who have the experience, it's just what they do. Um, but the Mike Tyson Buster Douglas fight was a little bit different. Uh, nobody ever anticipated that Buster Douglas had a shot. Now, I will say that I didn't think Mike Tyson was on his best that particular night because my room at the Otani Hotel was a floor above Mike's. And every now and then, uh, being a good friend of Mike Tyson, I would pop in only to see that Mike had a lot of visitors coming in and out of that room that I felt could possibly distract him. So I don't think Mike Tyson's game was as focused as it should have been, and I didn't think Mike was taking Buster seriously. But the fast-forward that evening of that fight, um, nobody had ever seen Mike Tyson in trouble, let alone being knocked down. And there are some beautiful scenes within that fight 
where when Buster Butt Douglas knocks Mike Tyson down and the handheld camera goes right into Mike Tyson's face and all you see is a lost, confused individual trying to find his mouthpiece to put it back in. And it was the first time ever in live sports production, I think, where the actual crew became fans of the event. The production trucks were actually shaking with people screaming with excitement uh, to the point where we lost our focus for a couple of seconds before our executive producer at the time, Ross Greenberg, had to reel everybody back in. But it was probably the only time in my career where I went from being a, a, a surgical producer to a huge fan of the event witnessing something that I knew would be talked about for decades to come. Yeah, no kidding. And this wasn't too long before you finally got your big biggest break, which was when Golf Channel's original founder, Joseph Gibbs, and the other investors, including the immortal Arnold Palmer, got in touch with you about coming in and being the executive producer and essentially the architect, the Leonardo da Vinci, as we keep saying, of the Golf Channel. So let's, let's flash forward from Mike Whalen, the successful HBO boxing producer, to Mike Whalen getting called by Joseph Gibbs and company and being offered this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come in at the genesis of the Golf Channel's existence and well, create it, it all. It was, it, was, it was kind of written like a script. I was, I'm, you know, you got to remember, I'm a California boy, Northern California, up in the Marine County area. Uh, spent a few years living on Maui. So I'm, I'm, I love the warm weather. I, I, I love doing things outside. Um, but my job took me to New York City where um, I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey, took the train in every single day and worked Midtown Manhattan. And it happened to be a January, February, very cold blizzard in 1994. And I just remember staring out almost hypnotically outside of my window, uh, saying to myself, God, I'm so sick of this weather. I'm, I, I wish that, you know, I could move back home to California and do the same thing I'm doing now. Um, strangely, uh, the next day, uh, I was approached by a good friend of mine who was the senior vice president of programming. Uh, this gentleman didn't actually even work in the production department, but he and I were good friends, and that's Robert Greenway, who had, unbeknownst to me, taken the job as the senior vice president of production and programming to the Golf Channel and offered me the position to go to the Golf Channel and become the vice president and executive producer of production. And you uh, said Bob he offered I, you this Bob, in the Bob bathroom? You said this was in the bathroom, right? You got well, the, way, the, bathroom. the way it happened was kind of strange, and it, and it was very, very close to a, a gas station-like uh, environment. I happened to one day be going to, uh, I was peeing in the men's room, and Bob kind of nuzzled up alongside of me um, and whispered in my ear, uh, young man, I might have something for you. Now, in, in many cases, Mike might take that as a, an indication of, uh, 
something uh, toe tapping going on there. Maybe dude. a little shocking and X-rated, but I laughed it off and I asked him what it was, and he said at the time, "I can't tell you exactly, but uh, something's going to be happening to me, and um, I'll let you know then." Now, at the time, I thought Bob was just going to be promoted, maybe to president of HBO or something like that. Never mind wildest dreams that I think that he would be packing up his bags and leaving a tremendously good, high-paying job at HBO where it was a safe working environment, we were a family, and really take the chance of doing something different. And a week or two later when Bob's uh, job got finalized by Joe Gibbs, uh, IMG, and Arnold Palmer is when Bob offered me the job. So explain exactly what they were wanting you to do. I mean, I've said executive producer, but people hear that and they don't know what that means. Well, I was going my, to, my, I got hired to be the vice president and executive producer of production. Uh, what I do is I create television shows from, from scratch. Um, and I do them very, very well. And I was very successful at HBO. And I think that my creativity and design and working with others uh, stood out, obviously, to, to Bob Greenway. And what he wanted me to do was to get to Orlando as fast as I possibly could and create a 24-hour, 365-day, seven-day-a-week television network of which, at the time I was offered the job, not one person had been hired. Um, so I ended up going to Orlando, Florida, in, in two weeks from today will be my 25th anniversary of moving to Orlando, Florida. Um, that particular summer, I produced Wimbledon Tennis for HBO. I jumped on a plane from London and flew to uh, Las Vegas where I produced a fight for HBO uh, and then took a red eye, packed up my home, and then moved to Orlando, Florida. But when I was offered the job on that plane flight from New York to London is when I started to, on a cocktail napkin, start to sketch frantically what the hell a 24-hour golf channel was going to be, because at the time, uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I did know that I needed to reach a niche audience. I did know that the people who watch and play sport are really, really interesting men and women. They love to learn. They love to get better. They love their history. Um, and I wanted the Golf Channel to be, and the words that always came to my mind were intimate, intimate, intimate. I wanted people who would watch this network to feel like they knew Arnold Palmer or they knew uh, Annika Sorenstam or they knew Pete Dye or they knew some of the greatest uh, instructors in the world. So one of the things that I wanted to do that really hadn't been done in sports television is I wanted to interject the call-in opportunity where the viewer could participate. And that's when I came up with the idea of the show's Golf Talk Live, where a host would interview once or twice a week the greatest characters of the game. I created a live academy a show where 
the greatest instructors in the world would give you and I the 14, 20, 30 handicap, the ability to improve on his and her game. And not only that, you could call in and talk to the Jim McLeans, the Jim Flicks, uh, the Dean Reimuths, the Dave Pells. You could, uh, we'd also have a live show at the end of uh, the Sunday tournament where we would recap what just took place on Sunday, very similar to what the networks were doing with their NFL coverage. And then, of course, I wanted a weekly news show where we would cover exactly like SportsCenter would do on ESPN what was going on in the world of sports. So in the eight-hour flight from New York to London and from London to Las Vegas and Las Vegas to New Jersey, I had really on a uh, scratch paper, which I had sent to you, pretty much laid out the concept of the shows. I laid out how many people it was going to take to do it. I started to create uh, uh, the, the music that I was going to use, the design for the sets, uh, pretty much everything that I, when I got to Orlando, at least I would be somewhat prepared uh, to start the venture of bringing these people in and getting this work done to get the network on the air. Now, the interesting thing about it is... Uh, you don't put together a network in four and a half months like I was asked to do. I'm watching a documentary right now, a miniseries uh, about the creation of Fox News, and Roger Ailes uh, had 19 and a half months to put on Fox News with a billion dollar budget from Rupert Murdoch. I had four months with chewing, uh, chewing gum and spit uh, to put together the Golf Channel, but in my mind, I knew exactly. I knew exactly what every show was going to look like, what every show was going to sound like, what every show was going to feel like. And my job was just finding the right men and women who could fulfill my dreams and my vision. And I was very, very blessed to be able to uh, pillage every available producer, director, support staff person on planet earth and get them convinced that this dream that joe and arnold and bob and i had was going to be something that they wanted to be a part of so brought them down to the wild wild west of orlando florida and there it began so most people when they think about golf and especially golf channel think about wealth ostentatious kind of wealth yet you and i have both talked i've talked with many people that were involved with the creation of golf channel everybody says this felt like a humongous dice roll, Mike. It felt like this huge gamble, and there wasn't a ton of budget up front. The Joseph Gibbs and the investors were bleeding money just to keep it going for a while. There weren't that many viewers early on. No one was sure that this was going to become successful, and it was only after a while that you guys started to see it really take off and be, you know start heading towards the billion-dollar entertainment industry it is now kind of take me through how did it find its legs and go from just being a dream that this alabama businessman dreamt up with arnold palmer and friends to being something that is as ubiquitous as any channel on your cable package now that you get well the the the, the relieving part about this whole journey was that it wasn't my job to get distribution 
and the financing for this particular network. Joe and Arnold and, and all of those that did a fabulous job of procuring about 50 or 60 or $70 million to, to get this thing up and running. Um, as far as the viewership was going at the very beginning, Joe believed that it could be a, you know, a, a pay channel that that you would pay two ninety nine or three ninety nine or four ninety nine and you could get the golf channel and that he was banking on the millions of people who are already part of the golf um, base to uh, pony up this type of money and to be successful out of the shoot. Well, that 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 didn't quite work. Um, you know, I'm not sure if the night that we went on live in January. If more people follow Peter Kessler, as Keith Herson once told me, if Peter had a big has a bigger audience today on Twitter, or there was more people watching him that night that we went on the air, but I have no idea if there was one person or nine thousand people that night. But to Joe's credit and to the financial, to Jim Lowry, who was our CFO, and to those that knew a lot more about distribution than I did. They quickly changed the business model and said, you know what, uh, you know, they pretty much call it the heroin syndrome. You know, we're going to give away our product for almost free. In fact, we'll pay you. And then at some point you're going to fall in love with it so much that, you know, we'll be in a position then to call our shot and to get which money we needed to air the broadcast. But in the very beginning, it was tough. And the hard part about it was is that I had hired close to 100 people who bought into my dream. And many of these people, you know, hey, they sold everything back home. They, we have people from Vancouver to the East Coast, from Alaska to Europe, who came to Orlando, Florida, and spent every penny they possibly had to create this new life and new career in Orlando. And every single day, I wasn't sure if Joe was going to be able to make payroll. So not only did I have the pressure of creating this network that had to blow the advertisers and the distributors out of the water with beautiful production skills so they would buy into it, but I also feared and wondered and had this concern every single day about all of these people that I brought in and was it was my vision a true reality for all these people or was this thing going to fall and implode and everybody would lose everything that they came down here to do. So it, it was very, very difficult for a lot of the senior officers in the very beginning to make sure that this thing worked. I don't think all the employees knew uh, how you know, close we were to not making payroll every Friday. I don't know if they knew the financial ramifications. They had no reason to. They were so engrossed in doing their own shows that that was my job and that was Bob's job and that was Joe Gibbs' job and that was other senior executive jobs in the financing world to make sure that we kept this thing afloat. So what was the big turning point? I mean, I know I was going to ask you about Peter Kessler, but it seemed like Peter early on became the face and the personality of the network. Was it his popularity? Did it have to do with the, the content of the shows? Did people finally realize that they actually wanted a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week golf channel? I mean, what was it that really put you guys over the top? I think there was no doubt that when I hired Peter Kessler, and uh, Peter's persona 
radiated on the three shows that I put him on that those that were watching the show knew that what they were witnessing was a, a special television network that had not only creativity and a good vision to look at, but it also had the authority of knowing the sport real well. Uh, you know, Peter was no doubt about it. He was the most visible only because I put him on three of our top shows right out of the gates. So it was kind of hard not to turn on the golf channel and not see Peter Kessler in some form. But, you know, Peter is a golf savant. There is no doubt about that. I've been in the industry for 30 years. I've worked with the greatest from Bob Costas to Al Michaels to John Madden to Jim Lampley to Chris Berman to Jim Nance. I, I know them all. And I will say this, that nobody knows a sport as well as Peter Kessler knew golf. And once we could get him comfortable, camera ready, um, I think it gave credibility to the network and golf magazines, publications, the, uh, the advertising community uh, paid attention. Now, now, Peter was fabulous, don't get me wrong, but we also had Golf Central. We also had some old classic shows that had been hidden for years that had cobwebs, the old Shell's Wonderful World of Golf that we repackaged. Uh, you know, I had brilliant people like Keith Hirschland who, you know, took live tournament coverage and had free range to move it into the 20th century. And I had other great producers. I had Jeff Himes, who did a fabulous job at our new shows, and Jay Kossoff, who was a brilliant documentarian. And I had a Paul Farnsworth. I had, you know, Jennifer Mills and Tommy Mack. I, mean, I, I can go through names of people that were so impassioned about what they did that it was hard not to see the end result when you turned on the golf. It was done well. It was done beautifully. It felt like an HBO production. Uh, we covered the sport as well as we could with the budget that we had. Um, and I think that it was hard not to uh, buy into the future of this network once you turned into it. Well, and I've spoken to many of these people who you just named, and every one of them says that you were working like a dog, Mike. You worked 18-hour days. You barely ever slept. You were there well, that's, doing well, that's, everything. Well that's, well, well, that, well, that's true. I mean, I mean imagine that if tomorrow... Uh, you bought an acre of land and you were going to design your home, but you only had you know, 45 days to design to get the contractors and to build the home or it all went away. Imagine what that would be like for you, your wife, those around you, the contractors. Uh, it, it, it would be mayhem. And as I said, I just gave you the side-by-side the -side analogy of in the 90s, there were two niche programs being developed, the Golf Channel, Fox News, at the same exact time. Fox News had a year and a half with a billion-dollar budget and had the pockets of Rupert Murdoch. Golf Channel, we had a fraction of that, and Joe Gibbs brought me in a, a, a towards the end of July of 94, and within five and a half months, we were going to pull the switch and go on the air live. So yes, I had 100 people to hire. 
I had shows I needed to create. I designed all the sets. I composed all of the music. I created all of the graphics. I mean, I was really a hands-on person because I knew exactly what this network needed to look like. A lot of the people that I brought in hadn't done HBO-type quality shows. They were more run and gun and get the show on the air. And I knew that we were going to have one chance to impress everybody who watched it. So I had very high expectations of what I wanted, the people that I wanted. And yes, I would show up at the office at 5.30, 6 o'clock. The only person who was there was the janitor. And I would often leave at 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night. And that was my day. And, you know, this show had to get on the air. And, you know, while I had many times where uh, in my in my honesty of inside my heart, I didn't think I was going to pull this off. I just knew that what I had to do was going to be putting the, uh, the, the, the pedal to the floor and do whatever I needed to do not to let down all of the people who I had promised this great network to. And yes, uh, it, 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 was, it was overwhelming. Uh, it was fearful. Uh, my body took a toll. My mind took a toll. But I had to keep that all inside of my uh, little 12-inch cranium because I had a job to do. Uh, I was a great uh, general, and we got it done. So did you ever think the Golf Channel wasn't going to make it? I mean, were there those moments oh, where you every, really doubted every, it? Every now, and, every now and then, you know, in budget meetings, every now and then when the rehearsals wouldn't go as well, every now and then when I didn't have the money that I needed to build the set. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tell the one story that the only time that I got hired from July of 94 till we went on the air in January of 95, that my heart sunk. Um, was one evening, and I remember this, we were in a senior executive meeting, and Joe Gibbs uh, shared with us that in a week or so that Arnold Palmer would be going on with Jay Leno, uh, and maybe I heard him wrong, but what I heard was he's going on Jay Leno to talk about the Golf Channel. And I said, my gosh, you couldn't get a better audience, you couldn't get better PR than what this was going to be like. And I remember that particular evening inviting uh, maybe two or three dozen people over to my small apartment at the time. And at 1130, we got ready to watch Arnold Palmer and Jay Leno talk about the Golf Channel. And Jay introduced Arnold. He set him up. He threw him a couple of softballs. And Arnold, for whatever reason, for his 12 minutes uh, going to millions of homes, forgot to mention one damn thing about the Golf Channel. I mean, that must and have been you, crushing, right? You could have heard a pin drop in my apartment that night. And I thought that, oh, my gosh, maybe Arnold doesn't believe in the Golf Channel as much as I thought he did. And so for about two or three days, there was just funeral march, uh, you know, with his soundtrack behind us of this sad uh, Private Ryan uh, destruction that people kind of walked around and felt it quickly passed. And we got back on our jobs, and, and things were okay. So let's go a little bit further now. You've been there a while. Things are up and running. They're successful, full speed ahead. But Mike Whalen wasn't necessarily going full speed ahead inside his own mind. 
And that's part of what this piece we're writing is about, is that you had struggled for years very privately with depression, bipolar depression, and other, other mental issues that nobody but you really knew about. You kept it very close to the vest. Obviously, it was a different time as far as mental health awareness goes. People were stigmatized if they said any of that out loud, and obviously you wouldn't have been put in the position you were put in uh, with the power that you had at Golf Channel. So you're struggling with all of this internally, obviously trying to you know, balance all this pressure that you've got coming from up top, trying to create all these things. You obviously got people within the company that are gunning for your job. You know, they're always taking shots at the biggest guy in the room. Um, you know, there there were some people trying to t t very very directly to try and snipe you out and and stab you in the back and the front and all over, and you're struggling with these mental issues. Kind of take us through a little bit of that. How how did that kind of finally manifest into something that you needed to address? Well, you know, I think that all of us grow up with the emotional sins of our parents. Um, they manifest themselves in a in a variety of ways. Uh, I had always, uh, since I was nine or 10 years old, knew that um, I didn't feel right. Uh, there was no label back in the 50s and 60s and 70s to what I was experiencing. It, uh, mental health back then was a taboo. You certainly didn't go to psychiatrists or psychologists, and you didn't talk about what was thought of as weaknesses in one psyche. So, you know, this severe bipolar depression um, that I had uh, kind of just pressure cooked inside of my mind for decades. Um, you know, I got a lot of help when I was at HBO, and many of the people who I worked with at HBO were fully aware of of you know, of, of these issues that I battled on a daily basis uh, in, 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 in silence, but I had a community of people that protected me and that I could talk to. Uh, and I think one of the greatest things about mental illness is having that support team of people that accept you the way you are and are willing to uh, tolerate you for the way you are and understand you for the way you are. But when I came down to the Golf Channel, I had pretty much abandoned 100% uh, of my support system. Um, and that goes from drinking, and that goes from seeing people that I needed to talk to. Uh, I came to the Golf Channel thinking that it was a new life and a new way of living. And in the very beginning, I was so busy, and I felt healthy, and I felt good. But, you know, anybody who has any type of mental illness will attest to that sooner or later, uh, the, the maladies start to creep back into one's life. And, you know, the pressure of creating this 24-hour billion, what would be a billion-dollar network, and everybody's life uh, style and, 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 and responsibilities on my shoulder, uh, you know, you, I, I couldn't walk down to Joe Gibbs' office and say to Joe, hey, Joe, I, I, I'm scared and I'm fearful and I don't know if I can do this. And I just want to let you know that the guy you hired uh, to protect your $100 million investment has these issues. Uh, that wouldn't quite fly, nor would I ever, you know, ever contemplate that. But, you know, 
that's one of the reasons that people who are creative, whether it be in the television, whether it be in the theater, whether it be uh, the, the whether it be a painter, whether anybody, whether it be a Wall Street person, when you have a mind that is a uh, an, an A type, hyperverbal, hypermanic uh, way of thinking. Um, you need to be able to find a way to silence those voices, and for many of us, we don't. So what we do is, you know, we find it in some dysfunctional way. You know, at the end of the 18-hour days, I mean, you have to understand this, and this is very, very important, is that, you know, a hundred people came to Orlando, Florida, and knew nobody but the people they worked with all day long. We didn't have a community. We didn't know people on our blocks. We didn't have church groups, and we didn't have support systems. All we knew were the people that worked to your left, and they worked to your right. And at the end of an 18-hour day, we worked so damn hard, we were under so much pressure, that what most of us ended up doing was going to the local watering hole in Orlando, Florida, where we could decompress at the end of the day, and that's something that a lot of people who have severe mental illness uh, feel a calm in doing because the alcohol or the dysfunctional environment will silence the voices in their mind and they'll feel okay for a while while in effect they're pouring gasoline on their malady. So every single night at the end of the day, you know, I forgot, you know, I, I was an executive, I was the boss. Um, but in my mind, in my experience, I was one of the gang. I was, you know, it, at the end of the day, I, I, I wanted some camaraderie. I wanted people to talk to. I, I wanted a community. I, I wanted to be around people where, when I didn't, where I didn't fear, feel fearful, where I didn't have these voices reminded me of my mental illness or my suicidal ideologies. So you drink. And you drink until the end of the night, and then you go home, and then you work the next day, and you, you, you repeat this pattern uh, day after day after day after day after day. And unfortunately, in that type of an environment, in a, in a niche uh, creation that comes along once a lifetime, uh, it led to a lot of problems with a lot of people. And, and I know and about Sam Sneeds, right? The problems weren't when people walked in the golf channel and left the golf channel. I mean, there was never any issues inside the walls of those offices. You know, the problems came from, from, from outside. And, you know, I never in my wildest dreams uh, would have thought that when you create a television network, there's going to be some people, as you said, that are out to get you. Well, we, so, we were talking and, about and Sam so, Sneeds, you know, Mike. Sam Sneeds was the pub or the bar that everybody hung out at that worked at Golf Channel, and every single person I've interviewed has brought up Sam Sneeds. So I know that was that was ground zero for kicking it. And well, yeah, I mean you got to. I mean it, it was it was our Cheers bar. Everybody knew your name. And Scott I mean, Van Pelt I, I, said he didn't I, want to give too much away, but I mean even Scott Van Pelt said that was a wild time as far as when work was over, you guys worked hard and then you played harder. Pretty much, right? The reason, the reason why you had, the reason why Mike Whalen had nobody to talk about is because everybody was there. You're going to go to the HR people. Well, they were there. You're going to go to the top lead. They were there. 
everybody was there. It, it, it starts off like everything does, a very innocent way to, to laugh and joke and wind down. And, and, and if, if you do it long enough, you know, I always say nothing good ever happens if you're going to an ATM after midnight. No Same thing. You know, nothing, nothing good comes when you go to a bar every single free time. That, but we knew nobody. We didn't have kids in, we didn't have kids in Little League. We didn't have communities. We, you know, we, we, we knew each other, and that was it. We, we, we worked hard together. We drank together, and lots of people developed relationships together. I mean, you know, there was dating, and there was marriages that came out of it. There was good things, and there was not so good things. But the point about it was, is that it was what I always thought was that it was an unspoken environment where. We were a family, and, and I learned in time that that's not the way the real world is, and the protection that I had when I was working at HBO was not the same as the Golf Channel, and I was not the boss at HBO, and I was the boss at the Golf Channel, and there are always going to be people of the 100 that you hire that, you know, that are after you. Now, you know, part of that had to do is as weeks turned into months, uh, we were going to have to make budget cuts. We didn't have the money to support everything that we launched with. And there was going to be people that were, unfortunately, were going to lose their jobs. And some of those people, you know, in their mind, believed that if they got rid of Mike Whalen, that their jobs would be saved. So, unfortunately, people went into my personal life, and I underscore personal life. It had nothing to do with the Golf Channel and created a false narrative of who this guy Mike Whalen was, and it caused issues for me at the Golf Channel for a few weeks. But what it did to me, more importantly, was it, re, was it took my severe depression and it amped it up uh, to a number 12, as they would say, say, in Spinal Tap, to where you know I had a very, very hard time functioning when I wasn't working, and, you know, I was also battling uh, suicidal thoughts at the time and had nobody to talk to. So, so it, let's talk about that for a hot sec. Let's talk about that specific moment. And I want to clarify, you were not the only person that was named by these folks in this lawsuit where they were trying to take shots at the Golf Channel. It was you and plenty of other people at Golf Channel that these people were taking you know, pretty wild shots at and taking shots at your personal life and, and painting you and many others out to be unseemly or importune. So you, you are named in this suit. It obviously upsets you and exacerbates your, your mental issues that you were already struggling with. There's an investigation. They find that none of these claims have any merit as far as, you know, your professional life. You're completely exonerated there. But you told me that that was kind of a turning point for you where you felt like it was time to leave. You, you well, did not it, want to it, be it, there it, anymore. It, it, it never made me mad. I, mad, is, mad is not the word that I would use. I was heartbroken by it. I was heartbroken by it because regardless of the mistakes I might have made, there was never any intention to hurt anybody, to disparage anybody, to do anything but to create a beautiful television network that I was able to do. 
and the Golf Channel mirrored society. You just don't get along with everybody, and there are people that are vicious and cruel and mean that will do whatever it takes to bring you down. I never thought it would happen, but it happened. And also back in the 80s and the 90s, it was a different time. I mean, that type of behavior would be uh, unacceptable today in the new Me Too movement. But it was, you know, it was everybody that was out there. But, you know, they went they went after me as some evil doers, this malicious predator. And uh, I was shocked by it. You know, I never saw it coming. I didn't think it would be an issue. And the Golf Channel uh, ran a thorough investigation where they interviewed lots of different people and came to the conclusion uh, that, you know, while Mike Whalen may have after hours not have been uh, making the best decisions as an officer of the company, but that none of his actions based upon the interviews that he did with said named people wanted anything but this to go away. I mean, the, the complaints and the frivolous lawsuit was not named by women. Or it was named by two disgruntled producers who wanted to save their jobs. And nobody wanted this to be any more than that. So the Golf Channel did a thorough, embarrassing investigation of my personal life and came to the conclusion that, you know, we're not letting you go. They could have. It would have saved them a lot of money. It would have saved them a lot of embarrassment. It would have saved, but the facts are the facts. And, you know, you follow the facts. At the end of the day, uh, it was not a fireable offense. And in some cases, I was, you know, apologized to by a lot of people for this, for even becoming an issue. And again, they didn't go after Mike Whalen. They went after the Golf Channel. It was never Mike Whalen named in it. This was a Golf Channel lawsuit that happened to have my name and a bunch of other people for nefarious uh, things that were never proven to be true. But at the point when this happened, uh, it broke my spirit. I mean, I the last place I wanted to be was a place where people had a, an impression of me that wasn't me. Um, you know, when this happened, I had probably 80 to 90% of the entire company come in uh, and support me uh, in in the accusations and and me as a human being, but uh, you know having to confront hundreds of people and to share that I had depression and share that I had a substance abuse when the the day was over um, was nobody's business. I ever believed um, you know I needed to get some help um, and. Forcing somebody to get help by exposing their deepest, darkest secrets, their worst days of their lives, um, is not the way that it should have played out. And um, and in time, I think that the depression exacerbated um, the 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 suicidal idolations became more frequent. And you know, in a year or two. Uh, I didn't want to be there. I didn't enjoy being there. The Golf Channel, uh, Joe Gibbs, knew that I didn't want to be there. It, it wasn't. It was no longer that the, the, the company was up and running. It was going to be sold. It was a billion-dollar business, and it was just time 
to move on uh, with everybody. It was heartbreaking. It was crushing. Um, it is. Uh, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for an individual that suffers from uh, the mental illness that I did. And I left the company with my head held high, but I quickly uh, spiraled downhill and became a recluse. And, you know, it led to a, an eventual um, poor decision where I attempted to take my life in December of 1999. Fortunately, it didn't happen, obviously. Let's um, go there, though, Mike. I mean, that's pretty much part of what this piece hinges on is that moment where it's Christmas Eve, you've left Golf Channel, it's pretty much gotten to the grimmest point. I don't even want to tell the story. You go ahead and tell it, but this is the moment where you attempted suicide and then kind of also found a reason to live. Tell us about that. Well, I, I wasn't thinking clearly. I, I, you know, you know, one of the things that all people with severe, um, you know, whether it's mania or whether it's depression or whether it's schizophrenia, any type of mental illness that if go, if gone untreated, uh, will exacerbate the mindset to where you just don't think clearly and the shame that I had, the PT, PTSD uh, that I developed, uh, it, it just took me to a very dark place where I just felt completely hopeless and sad and, and desperate and uh, ashamed and, you know, all of those things that you know, when you read anything on mental illness are the words that people uh, describe their malady with, but um, I don't know why I, I tried it. I, 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 I didn't think that, that there was hope for me again, and on Christmas Eve of 1999, I went into my garage and, you know, read up on it and decided that if I hooked a hose into my car... Uh, it would be a nice, peaceful way of saying goodbye, and uh, and I would never have to feel the way that I was feeling anymore. And, you know, it was Christmas Eve, and that particular day, I used to get calls from hundreds of employees and cards and well wishes, and, and that particular year, I heard from nobody. You know, all the thousands of people that I had helped in my life, the hundreds of people at the Golf Channel, uh, you know, it was out of sight, out of mind, and the loneliness um, took me into that garage, and uh, I did something that, uh, you know, it, that could have been the end of the story, but what ended up happening was as I was in my car, I heard my dogs, all three of them, barking, and it was a bark that uh, almost a guttural sound that I had never heard before, and I suddenly kind of came to my senses and said, God, what if I ended up killing my dogs and nothing happens to me? Uh, that would be the worst story that I could possibly think of, and I aborted the mission. Um, ended up going and getting some help, um, and that was my road to recovery. And I think it's interesting that you mention your dogs because now after you've gotten the help and you've found a reason to live and you're loving life and you're back on the path of, of living large, you have a very special thing that you do. You are someone that 
helps rescue animals, dogs, cats, and you do this in ways that I think are more grand than just about anybody I know. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the whole animal rescue department. Well, my, well, I've always been an animal lover, and uh, my wife Rebecca is an animal lover, and you know, it just, yeah, I just became more educated on the the thousands of illegal puppy mills that are, are run around the country, and and how animals are treated, and so we. Uh, help start a company that the sole mission is to break up these uh, unseemly puppy mills and rescue these animals and take animals that are on humane society on death watch that are going to be euthanized and rescue them and find foster homes and homes for thousands of dogs and cats that would otherwise live a horrible life and probably death. And we've been very, very blessed to get scores of veterinarians and people to participate in the foster system and in the adoption system and we've also been able to have uh, more than a dozen local ranches and farms who are willing to take uh, the dogs and cats that we can't find homes and give them a place to live so that their final days or long days are that of joy and and, and kindness and peace and serenity, uh, the way that animals are supposed to live. Uh, not in cages and not on death row and, and not uh, collared up in a puppy mill. And it's been something that's been near and dear to our heart. We've saved over 2,500 animals and um, very, very blessed that we have people who share our same mission with us. And it's one of the many things that, that I do in my life. I also do a lot with men's uh, health issues, having been a prostate cancer survivor, um, I you know try to get the message out there on a daily basis about men's health, uh, making sure that people don't have to go through what I did uh, from a physical standpoint with my cancer and subsequent uh, other uh, maladies that were caused because of my cancer and chemotherapy treatments. So you know, you know, look it. It wasn't like on Christmas of 2000, uh, 1999, I all of a sudden changed my whole life around and everything has been rosy. Uh, I have had my serious ups and downs since. I have, you know, fallen many times, but, but I, I've got the tools today to learn how to get up. And, um, you know, today, today it's a good life. It's, you know, it's not what I would have expected 30 years ago. It's different. Um, you, know, you never know when good things are going to turn bad or bad things are going to turn good. That's why I try not to label anything and just go with the flow of how life takes me to the next step. And, but you know, I, you know, 25 years later, I'm, I'm still around. I'm talking to you about, you know, the golf channel of, you know, many people probably who knew me back in 99 wouldn't probably have guessed that I wouldn't have been around uh, 19 years later to even talk about it. And, and today I am, I, I harbor very ill, little ill will towards anybody, uh, even the Peter Kesslers. The, you know, you know, from for many many years, I didn't even think about the Golf Channel to be honest until probably six, maybe, maybe two or three months ago when Peter started to act out, and everybody wanted my uh, response to it, and Alan Shipnut's article. 
sort of uh, got me back into the Golf Channel arena. And then I found out about you and you found out about Peter. And then all of a sudden it's turned into uh, rehashing a lot of old things uh, from yesteryear. Uh, Many are good. Many are still painful. But uh, I've learned how to manage the pain and enjoy the good days that I that I have for the most time. One, you definitely led me to Peter Kessler because I was definitely going to ask you about him before we got done with all of this. You, like I said at the beginning, you helped with the piece that I wrote for FromTheBackTees.com about Peter Kessler. Well, I, well, I helped I helped in the sense that I gave you an interview. That's right. The, that, that's all I did. Well, but I guess, I mean, you filled in some gaps for me. Yeah. You, you helped because I was under mis in, I was misinformed. I was operating under a lot of misinformation that was coming directly from former Golf Channel icon Peter Kessler. I had done an interview with him where he had right. spoke for 90 straight minutes making all sorts of grandiose claims about what he had done at the Golf Channel, taking way too much credit for things that he had done, basically saying he was you, that he had written, produced, directed, created he was the leonardo da vinci of golf channel he was you mike and that everything that had been done there was because of him he put golf channel on the map he was the greatest announcer and greatest you know television personality in sports ever of any no not just sports of any medium he was the greatest broadcaster ever he was better than edward r murrow and all these people and then I went on and was talking about it, and you heard me talking about what he had said and passing it on as secondhand information, and you called and corrected me on quite a bit of it and put me in touch with people that were able to corroborate the truth. So I guess that's what I meant by help, but we'll go a little deeper. This Breaking Bad with Peter Kessler article, and I definitely encourage everybody listening to go read it if you haven't already. It's done very well gotten a lot of great feedback from the people involved about it like the last week i was talking to scott van pelt and by the way i'm going to play that after we get done talking mike i'm going to play the the interview i did with scott van pelt uh from espn he was saying this piece was entirely accurate and really well done with the research and i got to give you credit because if you hadn't lit a fire under my ass to get going on digging deeper i probably would have run a puff piece that pretty much just echoed most of Peter's sentiments. So without you, know, back, you back it in, probably back, wouldn't have happened. Back, back, back in the 90s, um, I remember meeting with Oprah Winfrey. Um, and one of the things that, 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 that fascinated me about Oprah Winfrey um, was talking to her about her multi-billion dollar production company and brand that she developed uh, which probably will never be surpassed by anybody but the wonderful thing that I that I remembered about talking to Oprah was that how much she talked about those around her the people that supported her that believed in her that helped her the producers the directors the writers the people that got the coffee the people that got her makeup the people that that dressed her and 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 she was just a very very gracious person and more than anything that oprah has ever created and she is one of a kind her kindness about what it takes to do anything in life uh just always stuck with me very very deeply and 
look, all brilliant announcers, all brilliant television people, and I don't care if you're doing the local news in Iowa or you're the host of the biggest show for ESPN, Fox, or the Golf Channel, all people are brilliant because they have a sense of ego. They have a sense of narcissism. I mean, that's part of their genius. But every now and then, it just gets a little bit distorted. Um, and that's what I felt that your uh, presentation of not only Peter Kessler, but the Golf Channel in whole. So I just felt that it was necessary to uh, maybe clear up my experience since I was there at the very beginning and involved in more than one uh, show and let you know that, yes, Peter Kessler was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant host. That will never be denied. I will never say anything but, however, Peter did not do anything more than what he was paid to do brilliantly. He, he, his job was to be the host of Golf Talk Live, Get Academy Alive, Viewers Forum, and he did it brilliantly. But he didn't pop out of the sky, and he didn't do it without help, and there was hundreds of men and women behind the scenes long before the Golf Channel's Golf Talk Live ever went on, to the live, uh, went on live that night in January that resp responsible into the success of all of those shows. And when I hear one person wanting to claim that he, you know, put the golf channel on the map, it was, it was a, you know, it was a conglomeration of many people that did that. Was Peter the most notable because he had the highest profile franchise shows? Yes. But without the producer and the director and Mike Whalen and Joe Gibbs and Bob Greenway and the people who did the live tournament behind Keith and Jeff Himes and Paul Farnsworth and the list goes on and on and on, the Golf Channel would have folded like a cheap chair. So, yes, Peter played an important role. I think Peter elevated the Golf Channel to a level by which I don't know if anybody else would have done it as brilliantly. But, you know, it was a team effort, and I hate the idea as being a part of a team to hear anybody say that the game was won 100% because of them. And I just needed to make it clear to you that there's a bigger story in creation behind the 24-hour network than just Peter Kessler arriving on set uh, and having the director say three, two, one, go, Peter, and uh, he was a star. That's well, I was I was talking to the guys on the on the radio show I just did on the Bernie and Dalby talking golf show out of Phoenix, and I was comparing it to a Fowler, say Ricky Fowler, obviously very very visible golfer on the tour now, one of the most popular golfers, and he has been for about eight years or so. Peter was super popular on Golf Channel for about eight years. And then due to what I've been told by many people now, including yourself, was a very poor attitude and uh, snipiness with others. He was let go and never really got an opportunity again. So it would be like if Fowler had this great run of popularity and then suddenly 
turned very sour on everyone and basically drummed himself off the tour, but then pops back up 10 years later going, I am the greatest golfer who ever lived, and I put the PGA on the map, and they owe everything to me, and it's all about my legacy. And he's going around saying that to everyone that's still out there making the PGA great. And I use Fowler as the example because one, he's very popular, but two, he hasn't won any majors. And, and as far as you know, broadcasters go, majors are Emmys and Ace Awards, right? So well, they'd be the, like that. The, the, the only difference of Ricky Fowler is, um, from what I understand, he's a very beloved uh, individual on the tour and, and around that. There is no animus about Ricky Fowler as being a disliked performer on tour. Um, it, it, it is surprising. Look, um, if you would have told me that Peter Kessler's career would have only have lasted significantly for eight years. I mean, I know he did a, uh, a serious XM uh, podcast, a show. Uh, I know he's done a couple of things, but, you know, I am absolutely, and I said this in your piece, I think, uh, I am absolutely shocked. And, and I don't know if that's even the right word. I am absolutely shocked. Now, this particular individual, with his knowledge, did not land another Golf Channel-like gig with a CBS, an NBC, a Fox, an ESPN. So the problem is this. It's a very small community broadcast television, the sports world. Word about you spreads very, very quickly. And executives like I was at the time, or ESPN, or it, they have to weigh the balance of is the drama and tumultuous relationships within the body of their building worth the effort of hiring an individual? And because at the bottom line is the bottom line. The bottom line is uh, can a Peter Kessler or can a Joe Buck or can a Brandel Chambly or can a, uh, you know, a Chris Berman or a Scott Van Pelt generate dollars on your bottom line? If the answer is yes, they want you. If the answer is no, then they don't want you. But Peter kind of falls in this very weird twilight zone space where there's no doubt that to the viewer... Peter is a very beloved and still is to a small niche of people that love his eight-year body of work. Unfortunately, those aren't the individuals that hire and fire and pay people. So, unfortunately, I mean, I always thought that Peter Kessler years ago should have done a mea culpa. He should have gone to whomever he needed to with his tail between his leg and said, look, I blew a couple of opportunities. I got too big for my britches. I understand that. I realize it. I really think I have a contribution to be made, and I would really like a final act uh, to my career. And I think he probably would have got, but instead of that, he's, you know, he, he's gone into this Twitter sphere of absolutely viciously attacking all of those who are responsible for giving him his next break. And 
you know, I don't think Peter's final act is going to be a television act. It might be a promotional self-created. It might be, uh, you know, giving uh, dinner talks to a few people that want to hear about the nostalgic old days. But uh, but I think, you know, I think Peter has pretty much uh, shot the sheriff. Yeah, no kidding. And you said you listen to that every day driving the Golf Channel. So I think if anybody knows about it, it's you. I, I, all right. So before we get done here, I got to take one last run at, at Pete here because those that read the piece will know that Kessler started out calling me his good friend who he'd do anything for. And by the time I started asking him tougher questions, when I started figuring out that not everything he said was 100% accurate, he called me a scum-sucking worm. He said that he was going to send me to jail, he was going to ruin me financially, and he was going to break my neck and crack my editor's skull open. Mike, might it be that he's struggling with some sociopathy here? Because, like you said, he could have been contrite at any point along the way, and people probably would have given him another chance. Yet he seems so utterly remorseless, not just with me, but with anyone. It seems like there's no apologizing in this guy. Could this possibly be some of that, or do you not well, even want to put those I, words I, in I, your I, mouth? I am, not a, I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, but I will say that um, you know personality disorders manifest themselves in very, very strange uh, antisocial ways. Uh, and as brilliant as Peter uh, is and continues to be, I mean, he, he, he's, he, he's witty, he's smart. Uh, when you first meet him, he's charming. He's, he's all of those things which makes him so dangerous uh, for those that try to uh, play with him in the play box. Uh, look, I hired the guy. Without Mike Whalen, there would never be a Peter Kessler. Peter Kessler would have uh, lived his life in upstate New York somewhere. Uh, Lord knows what he would have done. But, uh, look, if, if the person who gave somebody the greatest opportunity that they've ever had in their life, where he not only found his niche in life, but he was able to recreate his family environment, all the things that we want in life to be a part of, to be loved, to have, if, if, if Peter feels that way about me, uh, I can only imagine the way he attacks other people. Um, I just don't think there's room in Peter's life for more than one person to shine uh, on center stage um, on Broadway. I just I, I think it's no more difficult than that, and and I think that the short time that I was at the Golf Channel, um, you know, I was the I was the guy. Uh, Peter was the star. But Mike Whalen was the guy, and I think it probably drove him absolutely batshit to have to deal with that every single day when, you know, when he wanted nothing more than for me to be gone so that there would not be another person who could take the, uh, the glory of center stage. And, you know, you know, Peter... You know, certainly wasn't one of my uh, biggest supporters at the very end, 
Uh, it very it ended very acrimoniously, uh, sadly. But you know, I'm a very uh, observant individual. It's probably why I love animals so much. You know, a dog when you come over knows right away whether he's or she's somebody who wants to sit on your lap or somebody who wants to snip at your heel. And I'm kind of like that little mutt that, you know, when I meet somebody, I, I know right away whether or not uh, your heart is in a good place or whether it's something I need to watch out for. And, and I certainly always had to watch out for Peter. Um, you know, he, he had moments of kindness and appreciation, but they were very, very fleeting. Um, you know, after all of this, uh, I still wish that, you know, that he would find some serenity in his life, some calmness, some empathy. Um, but I think he believes that in this new world of social media, and it's not Peter Kessler. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but it's, you know, it's Rush Limbaugh, it's Mike and the Mad Dog, it's, it's Alex Jones, it's, it's our own 45th president, uh, you know, the way to create a base is to attack others vehemently. And I think Peter believes that, you know, by doing that is his way back to relevance. Um, and as I said in your piece, I find that beneath him. I wouldn't agree if I was his agent or if I was consulting him. But I don't know if it's a if it's a mental illness or a social media malady that we're starting to see uh, amongst many men and women in today's marketplace of just trying to be relevant. Yeah, I almost think that that sociopathy has become kind of status quo. And you're right. I think it starts with all of the various people that kind of act that way so so unapologetically. And we're seeing it now seep in in ways that I don't even know if you could call it clinical. It just seems like it's kind of vicarious sociopathy where people just stop caring about others' feelings and start feeling like if you have any feelings at all, well, you're a puss, and that's just that, and get over it. And well, 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 I, well I think, you know, it, it goes back to, the, back to the 90s when these reality TV started to pop up where, you know, the ratings were driven by... Uh, people screaming at one another and fighting one another and and uh, mistreating one another and it evolved to the talk radio uh, you know circuit it talked to sport it, it entered sports radio uh, it entered journalism I think that you know that you know there are a certain uh, demographic of people that love this uh, ranting and raving with a bully pulpit. Um, and they find it uh, truthful. Peter Kessler speaks the truth. We need more of that, not the boring uh, golf channel format that they have today. Well, unfortunately, uh, executives aren't as uh, convinced that they want that type of drama on their airwaves, and that's why you don't see that anywhere in mainstream media, sports, television. Uh, you know, the guy's the greatest uh, in his mind. I don't know much about Twitter. You do. Uh, I don't know if you're the greatest of all time. Having 9,000 followers is a little bit uh, underachieving. I think the kid 
who has the tutorial of Play-Doh Funhouses has about 13,000 followers. <laughs> so I don't really know where 9,000 falls in the scheme of importance and relevance uh, in today's uh, you know social media world. Hey, bud, the great pumpkin, our 45th president's got about 60 million. Well, so. there you go. And I think, and I think he's, he's probably set the foundation to where there are a lot of people realizing that a couple of pages from his playbook, um, gosh, why, why couldn't that be me? Why can't I go after people and come up with names for those I don't like? And I mean, the way that Peter's gotten his most publicity, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a Peter Kessler, has been to attack those who have prominence. Randall Chambly, uh, you, you know, Tommy Roy, uh, a great producer for NBC, uh, Jack Graham, uh, you know, Mark Loomis, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's attacking everybody. Uh, thinking that it's going to elevate your standing when, in, in fact, it's just putting the nails on your professional coffin ever to have a another opportunity to do that. Um, you know, Peter, when I knew him, uh, I saw that side of him. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Peter is a very passive-aggressive attacker. He's brilliant. He's smart. Uh, he can get under your skin um, cerebrally, smart. He's very good at that, and he can drive you crazy. But, you know, is that the person that you want and you can deal with day after day after day? And I think the problem at the Golf Channel was those shows were shot in the Golf Channel studios. You know, Peter had to be there multiple times a week. It wasn't like it was a produced uh, outside distributor who happened to package the Peter Kessler shows and then overnight them to the Golf Channel and we aired them. You know, these were produced by the Golf Channel, owned by the Golf Channel, and will forever be owned by the Golf Channel. And I think Peter has, has mixed the idea of being a movie uh, television producer who owns their own product, Chuck Lorre on The Big Bang Theory, Young Sheldon, those types of shows where they own the show in perpetuity and they deserve to be paid and made money, and other shows that are owned by the network. ESPN, uh, you know, Brian Gumble does not own Real Sports with Brian Gumble. HBO does. Yeah. Same thing with Golf Talk Live. Peter Kessler's production company, of which there was none, did not own that show. He has no rights. He has no ability to resell or pack it. And I think there might be a confusion or an unwillingness to admit that uh, it's not his. Well, I, I just Googled him, Mike. course, like you said. I just Googled him because you were talking about The body of work that Peter did was amongst the best I've ever seen by anyone in our industry. I'm telling you, you know, he, he learned quickly. Uh, he was great at what he did. Most people loved uh, him, who he was interviewed by. Um, it was just 
the people that he worked with uh, wanted to jump off a building when they were assigned to one of his shows. Well, I, I just and, I just Googled him, Mike. I, I wanted to actually prove your point about what he's known for now. I just typed Peter Kessler into Google. That's it. No other no other words. The number one piece that comes up is former Golf Channel host Peter Kessler is a huge fan of Peter Kessler. That's the Shipnuck piece. That's number one. Yeah. Number two is his website and his Twitter. Then we've got Peter Kessler, former Golf Channel star, is not going away quietly. Yet another not-so-great piece about him. Then we've got yeah. Peter Kessler calls Brandel Chambly destructive bad influence. Peter Kessler lashed out at anyone and everyone on Twitter. What the fuck is wrong with Peter Kessler? This is the, this is the order of links that comes up well, at the top I, I, of Google. I, I, think that, I think that, you know, that it would, it would behoove Peter the same way it behooved me uh, to, to, to get help that was far beyond my ability to have the answers to. My best thinking always got me in trouble, and I had to uh, surrender uh, my heart and soul and my feelings to, to those who knew better. Um, but, you know, it saddens me. It's, it saddens me that, um, and I said it in your piece, you know, I should be getting phone calls today on the 25th anniversary of me being at the Golf Channel that there's an induction going on in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, of Peter Kessler into the Broadcast Hall of Fame. And that's what I would have bet the ranch on back in 1995. And it couldn't be more of the antithesis of what's happening today. Um, you know, Peter's not reached out to me. I don't think he has any plans to reach out to me. I don't think he cares what I think about the situation. He's never reached out to me with production ideas, knowing that I was available out there. So I think Peter Kessler, when I walked out of the doors in 1999, uh, pretty much, um, you know, you know, put a proverbial uh, shotgun to my existence and blew me into smithereens uh, to where he would never have to deal or work or share anything with Michael Whalen again. Um, you know, I, I wish that, you know, he would have listened more. I think that he would have had better advice, and I think that Peter would be on the tube somewhere today. Uh, you know, your piece had some very disturbing, you know, Keith who, you know, Peter believes that he lived in a vacuum in the Golf Channel, in which part he did, but he also had a huge presence when he was there, um, and it wasn't a good presence as your piece um, showed and and I was absolutely, I, I wasn't surprised, but I was kind of amazed that not one person you spoke with had anything positive to say besides he was a brilliant broadcaster. It didn't talk about him as a person, didn't talk about him as somebody who made a contribution to the company. I mean, there's a lot of people that could have benefited from his knowledge, um, but, you know, but that's not Peter. And I think if you trace it back as far as you do little Mike Whalen at eight years old, uh, seeing the divorce of my mother and father 
which led to decades of emotional problems. There are probably stories in Peter's life that he may or may not have shared that are responsible for the way he is today, sadly. Um, I hope that his final act isn't this. I hope that, um, you know, we love redemption stories on this planet. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody deserves a break. I mean, look, I got a break. Um, you know, I think I, I, I think I, I, I didn't get treated badly because I was a kind person. And I think when you fall, uh, you meet the same people on your way up as you do on your way down. And, you know, what I hear time after time after time after time from most people who are important in my life is uh, they heartfully appreciate what I did for them. They heartfully appreciate the kindness I showed to them. They kindfully appreciate the generosity I gave to them. Um, there aren't many bad stories about Michael Whalen except for a... Uh, a frivolous piece of, of, of slander that exists in the webosphere because things just don't go away once you accuse somebody. It's like me trying to prove that I don't see a unicorn in my backyard. I can't do that. You know, once people accuse you of something, you can't disprove a negative thing. And so what I try to do every day is be kind, be gentle, be considerate, learn from my mistakes, share my experience, my strength, my hope with other people who have fallen on hard times. Um, do I miss what I used to do? Absolutely. You know, when you're a creative soul by nature, uh, you miss the creativity. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy where I am right now. I'm a little bit calmer than I was many years ago. I have a wonderful person in my life that I love dearly. I've got my animals. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't look at my life as a very sad uh, journey. I look at it as a journey that most of us go through in our lives. Uh, just some are kept in secret and some are, <laughs> some are brought to public. And um, it's how we deal with them that defines us at the end of the day. I want to be remembered as somebody who was a kind person who fell and got up than a person who was a prick that lived their life alone. Well, Mike, I can verify from our friendship, which has surely popped off as a result of, of our time interviewing and, and getting to know each other. You're a very good dude. Everybody, like you say, and like I'm about to play when we get done here in a sec with Scott Van Pelt and everybody else involved with Golf Channel has gone on and on about not only the great opportunities that you gave to them, but how kind and sweet you are. I definitely appreciate you taking all this time to come on and talk with us today. Definitely go check out the piece Breaking Bad with Peter Kessler at FromTheBackTees.com listeners. Mike is in there. And then also coming soon... We're going to take our time with it, but coming soon, the Michael Whalen story, I built a masterpiece and then fell apart with help from yours truly, Tucker Booth. Be looking for that at FromTheBackTees.com. If you're on social media, it's hashtag RappersDon'tGolf. That's my blog, RappersDon'tGolf. And you can find Mike. It's, it's Mike J. Whalen, and that's W-H-E-L-A-N, Mike J. Whalen on Twitter. Give him a follow. 
Hit him up. He will talk to you. He's not one of these guys that's stuck up. He will absolutely talk to you. Really appreciate you coming on, brother man. Definitely, definitely uh, enjoy it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, you know, I love up and coming journalists and and creative people. And uh, you know, like I said, I think you've learned a lot in the past couple of months: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I think your future is bright. I always enjoy it. I never thought uh, that I would be following Jack White on uh, <laughs> on the 4th of July. Uh, the last radio show I did was 89 with Howard Stern. And what a way to bookend it with you. Me and Howard, together at last. You and Howard, baby. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks so much. Stick around, listeners. I'm going to play the Scott Van Pelt interview, ESPN's A-lister Scott Van Pelt, talking about Mike Whalen in a couple of seconds so stick around i'm gonna lead you off with this one we led you in with with uh i shot the sheriff mike we're gonna lead you out with john daly everybody's favorite pga player playing knocking on heaven's door as only john can mike whalen everybody killradio.org church how'd that go good Jumping in the